You're listening to Season 6, Episode number 3 of Strike the Match. In this episode, I continue the discussion related to the apostolic imagination. Today's topic, Apostles and Apostolic Function. So with that in mind, let's... Welcome to Strike the Match with teacher and missiologist Dr. J.D. Strike the Match is a podcast that addresses matters related to missions, innovation, and leadership. Now here's J.D. Well, welcome back, everyone. Thanks so much for checking out Season 6, Episode number 3. Appreciate you listening, and uh, also thank you for uh, subscribing to my podcast and for sharing this with uh, other folks that are in uh, your circles of influence. I tell you what, um, your recommendation to the folks that you know is greatly, greatly appreciated, and I do not take that lightly uh, at all. Uh, Hey, I love hearing from you folks, so um, send me an email, uh, track me down on social media. You can find me on um, just about, well, I don't want to say everything that's out there because there's so much out there, but uh, definitely out there on Twitter and Facebook, though I am, I think, a terrible Facebook friend. (laughs) I always have been. Uh, Instagram, of course. Hey, by the way, on Instagram, I uh, I've just started doing this lately. We'll see how it goes. I mean, it's some of you folks out there, or uh, folks at least on Instagram, are showing some interest in it. I'm in addition to giving the uh, typical pictures of uh, the uh, plate of spaghetti that I'm having for dinner, or the flower in my backyard, (laughs) the things that you do as well. Uh, on your Instagram accounts, um, I, you know, I'm doing like these 60 second or less um, videos every every now and then, usually once or twice a week. Though this past week I did not post one. Uh, just uh, well, many le- many lectures. Uh, of course, my students would really love it if my lectures were only 60 seconds or less. But um, uh, just something related to uh, a class that I'm I'm teaching or have taught or something that I'm researching, writing, something I've published. And so, hey, if that's of interest to you there, you can track me down on Instagram. Um, yes, of course, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, and believe it or not, believe it or not, I actually have a TikTok app on my phone. Um, though I have not posted anything on it, um, it's been a long time since I've even opened that app. Uh, basic back when uh, when TikTok was uh, was getting started and was making the the hype uh, around um, various media outlets, you know, it piqued my curiosity. Uh, part of the reason why is also because um, I have uh, um, a college student and a high schooler and a junior hire, and so I wanted to know, you know, what's out there and. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I checked it out, and uh, I haven't done anything on TikTok yet. Uh, part of the reason is because uh, I haven't been able to find a pair of stretch pants that uh, fit me. <laughs> Only those of you that have checked out TikTok will know what I am talking about. So, hey, thanks so much uh, again, really, for uh, checking out the, this this episode uh, of Strike the Match. I am coming at you on a brand new microphone, and uh, crazy thing is, is that the microphone that I've used for like the past, almost all of the past couple of seasons, 
is a, is a really nice microphone, a nice condenser microphone, and um, uh, it just died. I mean, like like this season, I've only had it for maybe a year and a half, two years, maybe, um, and it was really nice. Um, and if you're all wondering, was it the Blue Yeti? No, I do have a Blue Yeti that uh, I've used for many years. I still like that mic. Blue Yeti's doing great. Uh, but anyhow, this was a MXL and a 990, and it um, it just started developing this crazy like wind sound in the background whenever it was turned on. I mean, it just sounds like winds blowing, you know, while it sounds like I'm out in a field somewhere you know, doing a podcast. And so anyhow, I am using a completely different mic. I'm using, for those of you that are mic nerds that are out there, I'm actually using a dynamic mic now. It is a Shure SM48. Um, yeah, last, uh, last week, uh, I believe I had to, or last week, last episode, I went with another dynamic mic. It was a really cheap one that I've had here for years. And, uh, it was basically to, to save the day because my, my, uh, my good mic just up and, uh, up and died. So, so anyhow, I'm hoping that this is going to come out. Okay. And I've done a bunch of tests on this mic, but, um, uh, who knows? Who knows what it will turn out to be? Uh, again, keep in mind, I am, I am not only the uh, the spokesperson, but I am the uh, audio engineer and uh, producer and everything else for this uh, this podcast. So whether you like it or not, that's what you get. So hey, hopefully this microphone will be okay. Hopefully it'll work. We'll see see how it goes. And oh, and by the way, my and my monitors died. It's crazy. I had to get a new pair of monitors here for my home studio. But um, but anyhow, new toys. And I'm very thankful for them. So let me let me jump in um, to today's uh, topic, and uh, that is continuing on with um, with where I left off. And so um, last uh, last episode, I was talking about um, uh, apostolic language, the history of of language that we use in in missions today, and so. I'm continuing on with the whole apostolic imagination uh, thought, <laughs> no pun intended, um, and today we're going to be thinking about the issue of apostles and apostolic function. And so um, that is a topic that uh, when you wade into, uh, it is very controversial, but um, I think it's important that we need to look into the scriptures and see what does the Bible have to say about this particular issue, because it has, I believe, tremendous gravity on the Great Commission task to which uh, we have been called when it comes to global disciple-making. And keep in mind, when I say global, I'm talking about across the street, working among, working among unreached people groups just as much as I'm talking about on the other side of the world. And so, um, so I think this, this topic is incredibly, incredibly important for us. So uh, let me tell you where I'm going to go, and, um, and then I'll even, I'll even tell you where I'm coming from from the outset of this podcast episode so you're not sitting there wondering, all right, where's J.D. coming from on this issue? So where we're going to go uh, today. So basically, I'm going to, to talk about the apostle, uh, or maybe I should say it this way, you know, uh, who is an apostle in the Bible? And then I want to take uh, just a brief amount of time to talk about, well, what were or what are 
that we see in the Scripture, um, the apostolic functions, the, the main functions, the main activities that, that the writers of the New Testament uh, draw attention to when they talk about what the church was doing in her apostolic work. And so, um, if you need to go back to last uh, episode, season six, episode two, to uh, go back and look at issue of language and how so much of our language uh, today that we talk about when we talk about missions um, really is heavily uh, laden with uh, tradition and culture and, and heavily developed out of the, uh, the 16th century. Um, even though there has been a, a, a struggle, I would say, in the 20th century to draw it back to uh, the language of the apostolic in the uh, in the Bible, and so um, in some circles that's happening today. In other circles, it's not, and so we can talk about missions even when the gospel is not being shared. That's where we are today, and I'm not going to go back and repeat the previous episode. So today, apostles and what's apostolic function? So I'm, I'll tell you where I'm coming from right out right off the right out the out, right, excuse me right out of the starting gate. And that is this. Uh, When I look into the scriptures, I see that there are really two categories of apostle. Uh, By the way, let me make this disclaimer, I guess, before I even go any farther. And that is, there is an incredible amount of scholarship out there on this topic that I'm talking about. And in that amount of scholarship, there is an incredible amount of diverse opinions. Well, maybe I shouldn't say diverse convictions. How about that? Maybe we'll say it that way. And so uh, there is there is not um, consensus. There um, there's a great deal of, of disagreement, even on basically what I just said. I mean, it's almost it's like almost anything that you can say about what the Bible says about apostles. There's there's an incredible amount of disagreement among uh, New Testament scholars and theologians that are out there, and missiologists as well. So what I've already said. Well, I basically said well, I think that there are two different categories of apostles. There are many scholars that would would see that be the case. Though I will even say there are scholars that are out there that are arguing for uh, several different categories of of apostles. Uh, but I see two general categories, um, and I'll say this: there are scholars out there that will argue for only one category, and and so, so what I'm saying is that while I think there is good evidence for the convictions that I come to, not just from myself, but from other New Testament scholars and theologians, at the same time there are other solid uh, scholars that are out there that have. A completely different perspective on this. So I will let you uh, search the scriptures and be a Berean and come to your own understanding on these issues. But um, where I think there is a great deal of agreement is in the area of apostolic functions. And I will get to that toward the latter part of, of this episode. So Continuing on, where am I coming from on this? Well, two categories. One, I think there is this category that is what I refer to as a fixed category of apostle. The other category is what I will call a fluid category of apostle. So 
fixed category of apostles. This would be the office of apostle, uh, the situation whereby you have the twelve. You have um, Paul, I think, is in that category, even though Paul is not of the twelve. And, and in a sense, um, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, being in that category, though there are scholars that are out there that would disagree over James being considered an apostle. But I think that the, the, the category of what I would refer to as the fixed apostle, meaning the, the ones that held that office, whereby they had authority from God to, to speak revelation and to write his special revelation, to write the Bible, to write scripture, whereby these were the eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection. Now, clearly, Paul was not there on the first day of the week, but the resurrected Lord appears to him in Acts chapter 9 uh, on the Damascus Road, and then that account is retold through Luke's writings twice more in the book of Acts, so three times in the book of Acts. So you have um, the office, which is fixed, with the authority that comes from God based on that office. Uh, They're the eyewitnesses. They're the ones that are writing Scripture. There is no succession to this category of apostle. Now, I recognize that uh, my uh, Catholic friends out there and Catholic scholars out there would completely disagree with me on that. But I cannot find anything in the Scriptures whereby any of the apostles passed the mantle, so to speak, to a successor or to any subsequent generation. In fact, Judas is replaced in Acts chapter 1. It's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and and to complete sort of that, that circle of the twelve. You remember Jesus in Luke chapter 22 talks about how the, the twelve will sit on twelve thrones, um, or, or how the apostles will sit on twelve thrones, if I'm not mistaken, that's passage after um, Judas is not around, um, and how they will judge Israel. And so um, Peter talks about the need to fulfill uh, the, the scripture, to fulfill uh, the vacancy that Judas left, left behind when he committed suicide. And as you know, Matthias was chosen. Matthias had to have at least two qualifications, prerequisites, if you will. He had to have been there from the beginning, from the time of Jesus being baptized, John the Baptist, to the time of his ascension, and witnesses to the, and, and then also to be a witness to the resurrection. And he fulfilled those prerequisites. And so he was chosen. But here's the thing. You have the twelve, but after the church comes into existence, there is no replacement of any of those twelve. In fact, uh, when James is killed in Acts chapter 12, when Herod kills him, uh, that leaves a vacancy and we have no record of it being filled. There, there is no example of succession, apostolic succession in the New Testament. So the second category, the second um, area that I would say is, is what I would see as the apostle in the New Testament being a fluid category. So this is a completely different category that the, the, the understanding is not about office because the office is not applied, but it is about functionality. So what you have is a functional role, if you will, 
that is reflective of what was originally modeled by Jesus. Hebrews 3.1 3, tells us that he was apostle. Um, and then also uh, modeled by, by the Twelve, and Paul, of course. But here's the other thing about this functional category, and that is uh, there, there is no authority, such as authority in an office, but the authority is in the Word of God. So the authority that comes is, is that which is God's Word to His people. Now, we see in the New Testament, I believe, this category representing those that often represent a church from which they've been sent, or they're involved in some kind of carrying out some kind of special task. All right? So those are the two categories. So apostles being fixed, referring to the how we traditionally call them the, in the, the office of the apostle. And then there's this apostle category, I believe, that exists, and it's, it's more fluid. Now, those are two broad categories. So let me talk about those related to the fixed category, and then I'm going to talk about the fluid category. Now, again, I already said that there is um, there is some um, disagreement over the issue of a fixed category. So, for example, there are some scholars that will only say uh, it's about the twelve, and there are some scholars that will say, well, it's about the twelve, and it's about Paul, and there are other scholars that will say it's about the twelve, it's about Paul. Jesus is referred to as an apostle in Hebrews chapter three, verse one, and Maybe James, the brother of Jesus, is an apostle. So, in other words, there's all kinds of disagreement over, over this issue. But what I think we see when it comes to the fixed or the office category, well, let me I, even maybe before I even get into that, let me let me jump into again sort of the archetype, and that is Hebrews chapter three verse one, and that is Jesus is referred to as as an apostle, and obviously a high priest as well, and. You know, when you begin to look into, and it's the only time he's ever referred to by that word, apostolos, uh, in the New Testament. Now, however, whenever you look into the, John's gospel, the, the word, the verbal form that's related to Jesus being sent um, shows up all throughout the, uh, the gospel of John. And so I do believe that, that even though John doesn't apply the word apostle to Jesus, I do believe that that you see you see that function showing up uh, in John's gospel, and I would say also in in the other gospels as well. So I would say we start with Jesus. We see him being referred to as an apostle, and I would say what we see, and a lot of scholars, even missiologists, I'm not I'm not hearing going in this direction. But what we see in Jesus's ministry, I believe, sets the paradigm of what is to, to come when it comes to the apostolic functions. So what is Jesus doing? He shows up onto the scene. He comes onto the scene, sent from the Father, the apostolic God, and he begins preaching the good news of the kingdom. Repent, believe. He's doing evangelism. He calls his twelve to himself, so he, he, he is doing evangelism. He calls them to himself. He's modeling teaching before them. He sends them out. He gives them hands-on opportunities and experience. And before he ascends back into heaven, he basically leaves a, a church of 120 people in Jerusalem with 12, well, 11, 11 apostles, leaders over that church, and they're completely transformed on the day of Pentecost. And 
what so what you see is the church even prior to Acts chapter 2 it is a group that has been birthed out of the harvest because one has been sent and comes and begins doing evangelism that results in disciples made that results in those disciples being taught the kingdom ethic and that results in those disciples being taught the kingdom ethic some of them are raised up or called out to be leaders in a in an official capacity over the assembly of the saints and i would say that that is reflected all throughout the book of acts and even in paul's writings and i would say there are elements of that that continue on and should continue on today in our missionary activities so you've got jesus then you also have the 12 of course because that's usually who we think about when we think about apostles. So you've got the 12. They were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. They walked with Jesus. He called them to himself. Some of them, his first disciples, uh, were actually um, connected with uh, with John the Baptist. And uh, he pointed and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they followed Jesus. And he calls them to himself. Um, Matthias obviously replaces Judas, as I, as I just mentioned a moment ago. And so, so you have you have Paul even talking about how the church in Ephesians two twenty is built upon the prophets and the apostles. Uh, Jesus again talking about uh, the twelve sitting on twelve thrones to judge Israel. Uh, you have in Revelation uh, Revelation twenty one verse fourteen where um, the foundations of the of the new um, city uh, is 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 basically made up of twelve foundations with the names of the apostles on them. And so, very unique, very unique, fixed, non-repeatable understanding of of the apostles. But then also you have within, again, this office, which is is different because with Paul, you have this office, but at the same time, you see this functionality show up in in a much different way as he goes about doing evangelism and planting churches. And so what you have with Paul is, again, one who witnesses the resurrection, but it's revealed to him on the Damascus Road. He's, 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 he hasn't witnessed the resurrection, but he witnesses the resurrected Christ appearing to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's called, just like the others were, he, he's called to Jesus, refers to himself as one who is untimely born, uh, the least of all the apostles. He's not one of the twelve. And so we've got to keep that in mind. It's, 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 completely, it's completely separate from the Twelve. In fact, you know, I don't agree with them, but there are scholars out there that want to pit Luke um, against Paul when it comes to their understanding of apostolos. There are some that are saying, well, you know, Luke, you know, he never refers to Paul as an apostle except for Acts chapter 14, verse 4 and verse 14, and he does it in conjunction with calling Barnabas an apostle as well. And so Luke really doesn't think about Paul being an apostle. He's, he's really limiting everything to the 12. And there's scholars that are basically saying, well, well, Paul and Luke are at odds with one another and they contradict one another. I do not believe that at all. I think that they're looking at things from different perspectives. And so um, I would clearly say, yes, Paul is not of the 12, but he is very much uh, one that would fit into that special category uh, of the apostle having the authority, having seen Christ, being called by Christ, and writing Holy Scripture. Then you have the you have James, James the brother of Jesus. So again, I know some scholars disagree on this, but what you have with James, who's not part of the twelve, 
You have in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, and also in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, you have, when you look at those two texts together, 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 9, and uh, Galatians uh, 1, verse 19, it, excuse me, <coughs> pardon me, it, it appears that Paul is referring to James as, as an apostle. And there are some scholars that would say, well, no, he's just saying he's one person uh, among a group of people separate from the apostles. But, but go back and check. Take a look. See for yourself. Sorry, I have to get a drink of water here. All right. So I said that I believe there's a fluid category that's out there. And so when you look at Luke and Paul, and I will even say John, they seem to apply the term to a wider group of people. And, and so I'm going to kind of unpack that here uh, as we go through this. So, so let's, let's, start with, um, let's start with Barnabas. So in Acts chapter 14, verses 4 and also verse 14, Luke clearly references Paul and Barnabas with the word apostolos. Uh, in fact, um, I'll give you a couple of quotes here. I think these are worth listening to. John, John Polhill, who um, wrote an excellent commentary on the book of Acts, I actually had the privilege as a, as a graduate student of taking his Acts exegesis class. Uh, he writes this statement. He says, uh, in Acts, Luke used the term apostolos in a restricted sense, which denotes only the 12 who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' entire ministry. Acts 14, 4 and 14 are the exceptions to the rule. Perhaps Luke indicated here that Paul and Barnabas were delegates of the Antioch church commissioned by them for their mission. Perhaps it indicates Luke's awareness of the wider application of the word and that he here slipped into the more customary and less specified usage. Now, I also want to give you a quote from I. Howard Marshall because I think he acknowledges uh, the same thing that uh, Dr. Polhill references here, but Marshall, Dr. Marshall he adds a more definitive statement to it. He says, It is possible that Luke uses the word here in a very general sense to mean, quote, the missionaries sent out by the church at Antioch, end quote. More probably, however, the explanation lies in the fact that by apostles, Luke thinks primarily of the twelve appointed by Jesus during his earthly life with a particular mission to the Jews. But Luke was well aware of Paul's apostleship as is seen in the present passage and in the use of the cognate verb to send from the Greek apostello in chapter 22, verse 21, and chapter 26, verse 16. Thus, he recognizes that there was a group of apostles commissioned by Jesus wider than the twelve, and he does not deny that Paul and Barnabas belonged to this group. And so, again, check it out for yourself, Acts 14, verse 4, and verse 14. And then compare that to Paul's own words in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in the first six verses, in which Paul is talking about some of the rights that he has given up, and he, he equates Barnabas with him, because Barnabas was on his team, and he talks about the rights of an apostle, and he, he makes a statement about he and Barnabas. And, and so check it out. Check it out in Luke excuse me, in light of what Luke writes, uh, because I do believe that it is, it is biblical evidence that Barnabas was in, or was considered in this category of an apostle. 
Then you have this larger group of what I will call the others. So the others um, are as follows. There are, there are several other examples. So um, in 1 Corinthians, I'll go back to 1 Corinthians 15 in verses uh, 5 through 9. Some scholars look at the statement that Paul makes when he talks about um, uh, the, uh, all the apostles. If you read the text, he talks about Jesus' appearance, appearances after the resurrection, and he makes this statement, all the apostles. There are some scholars that see that as reference to a wider group. Um, there are some scholars that look at uh, what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6, referring to uh, Silvanus or Silas and possibly Timothy. So what's going on there? Well, in the introduction to 1 Thessalonians, Paul identifies in the salutation himself with Silvanus and Timothy. But then by the time you get to chapter 2, verse 6, what you have is Paul using the word we, and at the same time referring to we as apostles. So I, I, think it's, I think it's some evidence to consider, but at the same time, there have been some scholars that have said, well, what Paul is doing is he's just using the first person plural in the Greek uh, in the writing style. And so, you know, just like some authors today, you know, for example, when I write books, sometimes I will, I will talk about we, you know, did this or we did that. It's, you know, using that that uh, that plural, that author plural, if you will, when really it's just one individual. So 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 scholarship is divided over that issue. Give you another example of the others. So Epaphroditus, or Epaphroditus, excuse me. Um, in Philippians chapter two, verse twenty-five, uh, he is referred to as what the English translators will frequently translate as a messenger. Now, that word is apostolos, and so it is a noun there. It is the same word that's translated as apostle in other places in the New Testament, but it is translated there as messenger. So it's led some to believe, well, okay, he's representative of a certain, you know, of the church. Check it out yourself, Philippians 2.25. Then you have a couple of other examples um, that are close together. So Titus and um, a group of unnamed people called our brothers. <clears throat> Excuse me. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23, you have Paul referring to the word that's translated in our English translations, messengers. The word comes from apostolos, again, which is translated just like it's translated elsewhere as apostle. But he refers to, his, refers to the, this group, um, possibly Titus and this group of our brothers, uh, that he doesn't name, as being messengers of the churches. The word that's used there is, is literally apostles of the churches. Then you have the possibility of Apollos falling into this category. So 1 uh, Corinthians in the first four chapters, and then in chapter 9, the first three verses, there have been some that look at how Paul is equating Apollos with himself, and they're saying, well, Apollos is considered in this category as well. Then you have another category of the others, and this one, and I'm, I'm kind of using this one last because I don't think, I mean, the, again, the evidence of some of these are not as strong as, as others. I think the Acts 14, 4, and 
14 related to Barnabas uh, is, is incredibly strong evidence. But then in Romans 16, verse 7, you have the statement of, of Andronicus and Unius. Some scholars believe this was a husband and wife team. And that's, that verse that's used there in Romans chapter 16, verse 7, describes them as being well-known depending on the translation, well-known either among the apostles or well-known to the apostles. So, again, great deal of debate over this passage. Some scholars say they were well-known among the apostles, meaning that they were apostles. Some scholars say, no, they were well-known to the apostles, meaning that they were outstanding believers in, in service in the kingdom, had served with Paul, possibly imprisoned uh, with Paul, and so um, they weren't apostles, they were just well-known to the apostles. Uh, again, evidence, I believe, can go almost either way grammatically on on the Andronicus and Unius in Romans chapter 16, verse 7. And so not strong, I don't think it's a strong case that's there uh, for this uh, fluid category, but it's out there, and I, I think you need to know about it. Then there's finally one other aspect of, of uh, what we see in the Scriptures that I believe is support for a, a category beyond uh, the Twelve, beyond Paul, possibly, and James, uh, but a ca- another category, and that is um, picked up in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 5 and verse 13, 2 Corinthians 11, 5 and 13, and then also in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. So what do we have? Well, in Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he talks about the, the need—well, he basically is defending his apostleship. And he's basically saying, I'm not like these super apostles. It's the wording that's used there. He then calls the super apostles false apostles. All right, so they're considered false apostles. When we get over into Revelation, and if I'm correct, Revelation only refers, uses the word apostolos twice uh, at the end of the book when it talks about the names of the apostles on the, on the 12 foundations of the, the new city. But then also in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, whereby one of the churches, the church in Ephesus, if I'm not mistaken, is, is basically told that they're doing a good job because they are testing those who claim to be apostles and are basically finding that they are false apostles. Uh, in fact, um, let me. I'm not even read that passage of scripture because I think it's. I think it's an important passage of scripture related to to my point that's here. And so, Revelation chapter two, verse number two, to Jesus is speaking to the church in Ephesus. Um, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. So here's here's my take on this this category of false apostles. So Paul writes to the Corinthians, and then John, I believe, writes uh, to the seven churches there in Asia Minor. John's writing probably 50 years, maybe a half a century after Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. So over that period of time, clearly, if everything was just limited to the 12, and, and maybe to Paul, maybe to James, 
th- that number, 14, what, 14 people? So you got 12 and then Paul and James. So you got 14. Those 14 would be a, it'd be a limited number people would know. But I believe what you have, not only in Paul's time with the Corinthians, but most definitely in Ephesus by the time that John is, is writing, is the fact that there is an unknown number of apostles because the understanding of apostle was not just limited to the twelve, to Paul, to James. So much so that the number wasn't known, and the churches had to beware of these false teachers, these false apostles. And so therefore, if there was no need to be wondering whether or not this person is showing up as a as a as a true apostle or not, then people wouldn't be warned. But but if if you knew that the number was fixed and someone shows up and says, hey, I'm an apostle, and you pull out your list and you've got 14 names on it, and you check the person's name against your list of 14 and you find out that their name's not on it, well, no big deal. It's not it's a lie. But I think what you have is a a, a larger number. And that the churches had to be discerning, and they had to test the spirits. And so they're told, hey, you need to check, and there are those that are out there that are going to call themselves, they're going to call themselves apostles, but they're false apostles. All right, so I said at the end of this podcast, I, I wanted to briefly touch on apostolic functions. And, and this will be, I'm sure, unpacked in future episodes in this season. But when it comes to the apostolic functions, first and foremost, where the New Testament weighs the most weight, the most gravity on, here's what I think we see. And I think we see it in Jesus' ministry, him being the, the archetype, him being the, the apostle and high priest of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, that high Christological book communicating this, I believe, a high Christology of, of, of his apostleship, if you will. And and you see this in the life of the Twelve, and you see this in the life of Paul, and I think to a lesser degree, but most definitely with Barnabas, and I think with with some of the others, um, I think you see these functions showing up. And so here, I believe, are the primary apostolic functions that we find in the New Testament. And so therefore, if we're drawing our understanding of missionary from anything in the New Testament, then it's going to be connected to the apostolos. Whether, whether you agree, all right, whether you agree with, with what I've just said, and you think, okay, everything is, it's, when it comes to apostles, it's only the twelve. That's fine. That, that's fine. Um, it, or you think, okay, it's just the 12 and it's Paul. Okay, that's fine. Maybe you, d- you don't agree with me on, on my categories of fixed and fluidity, fixed and fluid. But I think what you would have to admit is, is to say, if we're going to draw a line from where we are in the 21st century to the New Testament, and we're looking for examples, models, guidance, principles by which we practice our, if you want to use the word missionary activity, I would say apostolic activity, then I would say, Here's what you're probably going to have to come to. You look at the life of the Twelve, you look at the life of Paul, and you say, what did they do? What were they about? Where were their priorities? And I think we would, for the most part, come to an agreement. And so here's what I think are 
the primary apostolic functions. Number one, evangelism. That they were primarily involved in preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel primarily in the highways and hedges of lostness. Yes, we see, for example, Paul desiring to preach the gospel to the Roman Christians because the gospel is a part of our sanctification process. But churches are birthed out of the harvest in the New Testament. And so it begins with evangelism. Jesus shows up on the scene preaching. He sends out the 12. He sends out the 72. Paul goes preaching. Power of the gospel. It's it's all over the New Testament and was a priority to what they were doing. Um, Number two, teaching obedience. So the Great Commission is more than seeing people make a profession of faith in Christ. The apostolic function is also to teach them to obey, to teach them obedience. So it's not sufficient just to see someone make a profession of faith. You you see this, again, throughout these examples that I have just mentioned in these different lives, these different models. And what were they doing? They were teaching people the kingdom ethic. Apostolic function number three, church planting. Even going back to Jesus as the example, what he left behind with the 120, with the 12 or the 11 in place, was his called out ones, his ecclesia. Now, were they about to be transformed by the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy on the day of Pentecost? Absolutely. But how did that come into existence? Evangelism, teaching them how to obey, gathering them together into the, to an assembly of the saints, and having their own leadership, church planting. We see that model in Paul. We see it with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. Churches being planted out of the harvest. What did they do? They did evangelism. They resulted in disciples made. Disciples were gathered together to self-identify as the local expression of the universal body of Christ. And then they appointed elders for them in every church. And that brings me to number four, apostolic function number four, leadership development. The apostolic teams did not see themselves as an end unto themselves. They saw themselves primarily as a scaffold attached to this household of God that they were a part of seeing planted and come into existence. Jesus did not remain with the Jerusalem church, but he prepared the church for his departure. He prepared them with their own leaders. Paul and Barnabas, first missionary journey, they go back in Acts chapter 14, they appoint elders Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Titus, the reason I left you on Crete was to put what remained in order and to appoint elders in every town. Leadership development, crucial, critical. 2 Timothy, what does Paul tell him? Pass these things on, what you've seen and heard in me, pass them on to other men who will be able to take it and turn and pass it on to others. So the notion of leadership development for new churches was critical to apostolic function. The scaffold would eventually come down, and they would move to another location to start the process over again of preaching the gospel, teaching obedience, planting the church, raising up elders, pastoral leadership. Fifth apostolic function, and that is the care for churches, the care for churches. So read Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, all the way through to verse 25 of chapter 2. Um what does Paul say? He wants to present them mature in Christ, before Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul talks about 
their care, their concern for the church that's there, how they were tender, caring like a nursing mother uh, to them as, as children. So you have this notion of care for the churches. There is no concept in the New Testament of my goal as an apostolic team is just to get a church in place and move on. Now, that's part of it. But what you see is the notion of development that is a part of the process. Now, clearly you have the issue of duration, duration and development. So Paul is there working to develop these churches. The duration of time is not indefinite. So clearly there's not this notion of there are going to be permanent fixtures attached to these new churches. Paul, Romans chapter 15, he wants to, to preach where there's not been a foundation that's laid. He doesn't want to build on someone else's foundation. Other people may build on the foundation, that's fine, but the role of the apostolic worker, first and foremost, is to go to where the, the foundation has not been. And so what you see is this, this care for the churches. And so the desire to see the churches healthy, to see them grow, um, Paul's concerned about the poor, the believers that are poor. So he, he's, he's in the process of Galatians chapter 2, Romans chapter 15, talking about delivering resources to the saints. So he's concerned about widows. He talks to Timothy about widows within the church at Ephesus. And, and so you see this concern for the churches. But, but while there's this concern for the churches, there is this recognition that we have to get things in place and established for these churches, that they may be healthy, that they may be growing and sanctified and developed in the Lord. But at the same time, we've got to continue on to repeat this process as we teach them to rely upon God's Word, His Holy Spirit, and their, their leaders and themselves as a community. So, for example, Acts chapter 6, what do you see in Jerusalem? You see the, the food distribution among the widows causing problems. What do the apostles do? They're concerned about the, the, the care for the church. And so they begin to help out. Well, that important, very important ministry begins to detract from what? Their primary responsibilities of preaching the gospel, doing evangelism, and prayer. And so what do they do? They don't say, hey, we've got to forget about this. They said, this is a serious matter. And so they, they have the, the church to appoint seven people to oversee this important ministry so that they can continue on preaching and praying. Now, maybe I've left something out of the list. Maybe there's, there's something that, uh, that you think needs to be included as far as the apostolic functions. Hey, if, if that's the case, send me, a, send me a message, send me an email, let me know, track me down. I'm very easy to find. And so... Um, so I'd like to hear from you on this. If I'm overlooking something, let me know. Uh, basically, I'm seeing the gravity in the area for apostolic functions being primarily in evangelism, teaching obedience, church planting, leadership development, and care for the churches. And so um, this topic is one that I believe if we begin today to think about what we're called to do in the Great Commission work that we're called to and return to the scriptures and begin to say, well, what were those apostolic functions? And we begin to give that our primary understanding, our primary identity and our primary understanding of what we're to be engaged in, in this thing that we call missions, I think it will put us in a much healthier position than what we are right now. It may mean that we create a category of 
of doing things in a, in a realm that's called ministry. There's so many important things that we need to do, but they're not apostolic functions. There's so many important things that I've done in other countries, I've done in my own country, and we've often labeled them as missions, and we've often talked about being missionaries doing this and doing this as a mission trip, when in reality, we're, we're doing amazing, wonderful ministry, helping brothers and sisters out for the glory of Christ. And that's fantastic, and that's important, and that should not be minimized. We, we, you don't see the apostles saying that Acts chapter 6 was a bad thing to deal with the, the widows and the food distribution. But some of those things, a lot of those things, maybe I believe even the majority of those things that we're doing today would not fall into the category of apostolic functions. There's something to think about. Lord willing, hope to catch you next time. Bye. You have been listening to Strike the Match with J.D. Day. You can find J.D. on Instagram, Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at J.D. underscore Payne. And if you'd like to check out more books, posts, and podcast episodes, visit jdpain.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite Android app or at iTunes. And we'd be honored if you would consider rating us or leaving comments. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time.